Good morning to each of you. Greetings in the name of Jesus, that risen Lord, our Lord. It's in his name that we have met together, and I trust it's in his name that we walk each day in his presence. I had prepared a message to share here a number of weeks ago and was not able to do that. And as I pondered what to preach this morning, I wasn't sure that that one would fit. It's Easter after all. But then I was refreshing myself and I realized that really it fits very well. I would like to, first of all, think of a verse in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that's kind of the theme of of the message. It's not the text verse. But that's, in a nutshell, the message. As Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, that power, that life is in us and allows us to walk in newness of life. Sometimes perhaps we, like, was it Martha, where Jesus in last Sunday's lesson said, do you believe in the resurrection? She says, I know that you will raise up, that, that we will be raised at the last day. And sometimes we think of the resurrection, we think, well, that means that, that after everyone dies, we will be raised from the dead and have to face eternity. And that's as far as resurrection goes. Do we experience the resurrection on a daily basis? The power of the resurrection. And it's interesting how many times in the the, message, the sermons that, that Paul and the other apostles preached in Acts and other places, how many times the power of the resurrection is used as the basis for living a victorious Christian life. That's the power that's available. I had to think as we were studying the Sunday school lesson and and the different responses of the disciples, along with the one song we sang this morning, Thine is the glory, risen, conquering Son, and it talked about, I don't have exactly here, but, but that Jesus came, but it, it wasn't that Jesus himself came out of the grave, out of the tomb. A dead person has no power in themselves to do anything. And I believe if you go and you study the references to the resurrection, it's the power of the Father that raised Christ from the dead. Now, maybe that's splitting hairs, and yet... It's the power of God that can be at work in every one of us that raised Christ from the dead. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John.
First John chapter 1. I'd like to begin reading at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, excuse me, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This seems like kind of a wordy introduction, perhaps, to this book. Why do you think John wrote this, these verses, especially you look at verses one and one through three, and he goes over and over about this thing that we have we've seen the word. We've heard him, we've touched him. Why do you think that this introduction was necessary? It's my understanding that Gnosticism was a prevalent ideology there in the in the early church time. This is John's writings are some of the later of the the writings. And what was Gnosticism? You know, it doesn't say the Bible doesn't talk about Gnosticism doesn't use that word. What was it? What what was being refuted here or why this this need? And I'd like to to give a little bit of definition of what Gnosticism was, and it helps us to understand why this was written and what it really means for us. A definition of Gnosticism is the thought and practice, especially of various cults of late pre-Christian and early Christian centuries, distinguished by the conviction that matter is evil and that emancipation or freedom comes through gnosis, or the Greek word for knowledge. If we have the spiritual enlightenment, then we can be free. Anything of earth, of matter, created thing, is evil. There's, I'm sure, were many variations in that belief system. But I'll, I'll read a few of the, of the summaries one was the idea of, of dualism, that the world, as I mentioned, alluded to, was divided into physical and spiritual realms. The created or the material world was evil and therefore in opposition to the world of the spirit and that only the spirit is good. Some even constructed an evil or lesser God to, uh, to be the God of the Old Testament in their minds because that explained creation. And if creation's evil and bad, then you had to have a God that was inferior and that Jesus Christ was a holy spiritual God. Some beliefs of Gnosticism held that Jesus had only appeared to have a human body, but he was actually only spirit. So do you see anything in those definitions 
that would help us to understand why John said, we have seen the Lord. This was a manifestation of God. Not only did we see Him and hear Him, we touched Him. He was physical. He was matter. But He was good. He was from God. He was a spirit, but He also was flesh and blood. And you know, I think for us, it's, this is very significant if we believe that the gospel is relevant for our time and for our lives. Why does it matter that Christ was a person? That the Savior, the, the Messiah, actually came and lived and walked and experienced what we experience. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That passage was explained to us a bit in, in detail on our last evening of our revivals, I believe. Brother Dale looked at Christ's being our high priest and how we are to be priests to each other. But if Jesus hadn't come and walked this earth, if he hadn't been flesh and blood, he would not be able to be touched with the feelings that we are, the thoughts that we are, that we have, the things we experience. He would be unable to connect, to empathize with us. But because he did come, because the, that he was the complete, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as it says, we're able to see a glimpse of who God is. And as we see that, there comes the possibility of, of a relationship with God and fulfillment in our, in our deepest needs of our life. I'd like to go ahead and read the next several verses of, of 1 John, beginning at verse 5. It says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I see in these verses actually a, a very clear, concise picture of the gospel. First of all, in verse 5, we have God is light. God is the standard. God is pure. God is holy. That's the baseline of understanding and belief 
or we have no need of the gospel. God is, and God is light. The other thing is fellowship. Mankind is created with that desire to know and to be known. To have a relationship. A relationship with the Creator. But this can only happen when we see our own sinfulness. We see our own our own fallen and corrupt nature. And we confess, as it says here, and I would say confess, a simple definition is to agree with God. To agree with God. That what I've, what I've done, I've done. Who I am, I really am. It says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. And then... What follows is forgiveness and a walk in holiness. And that's, that's really the gospel, is to realize who God is, realize who we are, agree with God who we are, and ask His forgiveness. And then be able to walk as He would have us to. There's also a picture of deception possible here. One who denies the reality of sin and yet claims to walk with God while living in sin. This deception is what the devil would like for each one to believe. Can we claim to walk with God? Can we actually walk with God with sin in our life? There's an article that I came across by Chester Weaver. The title or the heading was Dualism, which is part of this belief of Gnosticism, but it really goes a lot broader than that. And it's, it's a little lengthy, but I would like to, to read. I was going to pick out a few parts, but I will try to read quickly and clearly. And help us to, to see a few things of, of where how these things affect us and this deception of, of sin and holiness. Why all the doubleness in the world? Why has hypocrisy been a perennial human problem? Why do human beings settle for less than genuine? Why is the church especially sensitive to charges of hypocrisy? Why do not more people insist upon wholeness or oneness? Perhaps we could say integrity in that wholeness idea. The simple answer is humanness. Doubleness is humanly doable. Wholeness requires a divine work inside of a man, a miracle. Most humans are unwilling to pay the price for the miracle which delivers the divine answer of wholeness. The world is broken and human beings know it. In disillusionment, people settle for the lower standard of doubleness because it seems to be the only way the world works. Wholeness would be nice, but most people are resigned to doubleness. Thus, doubleness gets constant reinforcement from business, education, politics, entertainment, especially movies and drama, and polite society. 
In the beginning, Adam and Eve were created as whole human beings, totally true, good, and beautiful. Sin destroyed that wholeness in our first parents and introduced them to the embarrassment of nakedness. Adam and Eve understood that their wholeness was lost and their remedy was fig leaves. Their fix was insufficient. God's remedy provided animal skins as clothing, animal death being the necessary price. And not since that time has mankind lost its consciousness of shame of nakedness and of exposure. Something must relieve the burden of nakedness. That loss of the true, the beautiful, and the good was profound. Clothing prevents exposure, but it does not restore the human being to original wholeness. A huge gap remains between what is and what is supposed to be. And that gap is the reason for dualism. To be naked, to be exposed as false, evil, and ugly is simply unacceptable to human beings with a distant memory or perhaps a slight understanding. There's something in us that reaches for that true and good and beautiful. What should be done? God has one answer and man has an alternate answer. Maybe I'll summarize the next. It says that God, God used the entire Old Testament period. History. The, the rituals of the tabernacle and the temple. All these things of, of law pointed forward. They were preparation for his answer and that was the person of Christ. The story of Christ involves his miraculous birth Miraculous death and miraculous resurrection. This provision is the only way that wholeness can happen. Divine miracles are essential for wholeness to happen, but humanity resists miracles. Humans do like miracle showmanship, like magic and ventriloquism, but humans know that sleight of hand makes magic look like miracles, and they're not deceived by the facts. But humans really do resist genuine miracles. The world seems to operate in a working system because of cause and effect, laws of logic and naturalism without miracles. Some people deliberately resist the miracles of creation and flood, as well as the miracles of Christ and his bodily resurrection. Everybody expects life to flow along in concert with the laws of science. Everyday social and emotional life does not have a place for miracles. What then should be done? Since miracles must be avoided, humans have been quite creative in their endeavors to close the gap. Creative arrangements of fig leaves color the pages of history. While history records various aspect efforts to close the gap, we will look at just two, which have controlled the mental paradigm of the Western world for several hundred years. Today, we feel pressure to adopt one of these paradigms. And the first is that of the Roman Catholic Orthodox method. In that the church dispenses sacramental grace, supposedly, the fallen world, the individual is not fixed, but there's something given that's supposed to make it all right with God. The participant feels better. 
Nothing has really changed in the individual sinner. Several hundred years ago, some people did raise up with questions about this system. But being free from this system didn't fix the problem either. We had Martin Luther and the other reformers and there, they noted that the answer was laid out in the book of Romans. The just shall live by faith. Upon the exercise of human faith, God would declare a person righteous, recording the declaration in the books of heaven. And this is what they called it forensic righteousness or declared righteousness. Human behavior naturally should match the declared faith. But what if it did not happen? No problem. The human name was already written down. Works should match faith in humans being what they are, the discrepancy, but human beings being what they are, the discrepancy could be minimized. This declared righteousness was what really mattered. And here we have another form of, of this dualism, this doubleness. One thing is expected, one thing is necessary, one thing is required, and yet it's not attainable so often. But religious, the religious thought has said, well, we just have to work with it. There's no other way. And yet there's others. True-hearted people that are actually, that were actually seeking this true and good and beautiful design of God. These readers understood that the Bible's plan insisted upon actual wholeness, on that singular being of integrity, of thought, faith, and practice. They noted that the Protestant reformers taught part of wholeness, the first part. Humans are not made righteous by obeying the law. God does justify a believer who exercises his faith. Forensic righteousness does happen. But these people insisted that a believer, if a believer does not live righteously, then the faith is not genuine. The note... They noted that the reformers preached repentance for sin, but sin continued to happen in the lives of the repenters. So these people spoke of finished repentance, a life that actually demonstrated the fruit of repentance. Repentance was real when sin was continuously repudiated and shunned. But how is this possible? Human beings are very weak morally. Romans 7 illustrates this fact. It says, that which I, I do I do what I do not want to do, and I fail to do what I know I should do. Human effort falls short. Humans cannot be righteous in their own power. They need to come to the complete end of themselves to lose their lives for Christ's sake. Dying to themselves, now listen to this next phrase, is like dropping off the end of a rope that has been gripped for dear life. So, we hold on to something. We know that we want to be righteous. We know we need to do what we are supposed to do. And we're hanging on to this. But we have to die. We have to let go. We have to say, Lord, it's only by your grace. The drop into the arms of Christ who miraculously raises that person up to live. Raises that person up with power to live above sin on a daily basis. The dropping happens time and again. And the miraculous raising up happens time and again. 
The Apostle John made a special point to emphasize that Jesus Christ had a physical body in addition to his spirit. When he walked on this earth, his physical body did not sin. Since that was true for Jesus, that must also be true for his disciples. Not sinless perfection, of course. People who claim that position lie and do not the truth, as John says. But those who, both, who experience both the justification miracle and the sanctification miracle live in wholeness. The two living realities liberate the soul in ways that dualists cannot understand. The miracle is actually a miracle. Freedom to treasure and to live in the true, beautiful, and good. Upright lives demonstrate to onlookers the way it should be. Dualism's response to wholeness is best illustrated by the scribes and Pharisees' response to Christ while he walked among them. You see, that system, to interject here, was based similar to the Catholic system. There was, there was things to do. There was, you come and you, you offer the animal, and a lot of that was instituted by God to point forward. But these people were living lives that Jesus called them on and he said one instance he said to them to clean both the inside and the outside of the vessel you see dualism would have clean on one dirty on the other and that's okay he called them hypocrites and asked how they could escape the damnation of hell Jesus encouraged his followers to do what the Pharisees taught but not what they practiced and this insistence on this wholeness and integrity infuriated the Jews and they could only tolerate him for three and a half years and then they were ready to kill him. Interestingly, when, when the Romans, when Pilate asked, what evil did he do? Their answer was, crucify. They didn't have anything to charge him with of evil. God is still God. His standards are immutable. God wants wholeness in his people. If we look here again at, at 1 John, do we see a wholeness and integrity? Do we see that in the, in the world around us? Do we see it in our own lives? I'd like to consider these verses a little bit from, the, from verse 9 back up to verse 5. Someone pointed out that sometimes passages can be a bit confusing or obscure, but if you read them backwards, they can kind of help come to light. And I'd look, like to look here at the steps of progression so in verse 9, we have confession. Again, that's agreeing with God. And we have forgiveness and we have cleansing in that verse. Agree with God that I am not what I should be. I'm a sinner. God will forgive. And then it says, He is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the cleansing, that's inside, that's outside, that's all around, that's not just declared, that's cleansed. And then if we go up 
to verse 7, it says, it talks about walking in the light. And I believe that's that ongoing walk, that ongoing experience of endeavoring to follow Christ in living above sin, fulfilling the law, as it were, by the power of Christ. And then if we go up into verse 6, we have fellowship with God. And if we go up to verse 4, we have full joy. And that's what we know, that those steps are there. But each step is dependent on the previous We can't have full joy if we're not in fellowship with God. And we can't have fellowship with God if we're walking in the dark. And we can't walk in the light if we haven't been cleansed. And we can't be cleansed unless we have been forgiven. And we can't be forgiven unless we have confessed our sin. If we say that we have not sinned, verse 10, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I'd like to read into chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I'm going to read that again. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. John says that one of his reasons for writing is that we exercise ourselves, that we are diligent to guard against sin that we do not let sin creep into our lives, live there. We cannot be walking in sin and have fellowship with God. There's numerous passages that speak to being aware, to taking heed. I would like to read one in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 14. It says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you treasure your walk with the Lord? Do you treasure a relationship that is pure, that is whole? Do you see sin for what it really is? And what are you willing to do about it? Are you willing to flee? James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, 
he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not let lust conceive. Do not let the desires that would come into our mind that are evil grow. When the thoughts come, take them to the Lord in prayer. The verse in Proverbs, If sinners entice thee, consent thou not. It takes an effort. It takes diligence. It takes vigilance. We all know that sin will destroy our relationship with God. Adam and Eve found that out very firsthand and very vividly. They walked with God. They walked with God. They had a relationship like like few experienced. Enoch walked with God too, we're told. But they walked with God until... They took their own way. Something that they lusted for, that desire, just a, a desire. It was beautiful. It tasted good, perhaps. And it destroyed that lovely relationship. Our desire as children of God should be to be pure, to let nothing in our lives that would interfere with our walking in the light. And in Luke 21, Jesus had these words to say. Verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, here again is that warning, take heed, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that that day come upon you unawares. Life is full of cares perplexing. And alone I lose the way. How are we to do this? I had to think in the last day or so, I was thinking about the resurrection. So Christ lived here on earth. He walked, he taught, he loved, he healed, he did all these things, he suffered immensely our sins he was crucified his blood was shed for the remission of our sins he died was buried he rose again demonstrating that power of God and then he left what would it be like if Jesus was still on the earth Why didn't he stay? Wouldn't that be interesting to be able to go meet Jesus? You ever thought about that? Go shake his hand? He's still alive. He was flesh.
Jesus said it's expedient that I go away so that the Comforter can come. And I think there's an aspect there that we do well to embrace more completely. So now these these things of life, most of us would not say that we are surfeiting, that we, hopefully none of us are, are drunk, but do we get involved in the cares of this life to the point that it dulls our perspective, our perception. And where keeping life going gets in the way of a clear vision of who God is and who I am. And maybe I compromise so that I can take better care of life. I don't know what what you may be experiencing in, in facing in life, but John wants us to realize the value of a righteous life and experience that full joy that comes through fellowship. You know, sinless perfection is a is not the reality. says if we say we not do not sin we make him a liar but it does call us to live above sin but it also gives the answer here if we sin it says in verse 1 of chapter 2 if any man sin we have an advocate what is an advocate one translation says a counsel for defense it's like a lawyer that's there to plead for us. Someone that cares and that has our interests. A defense attorney. And not only do we have that advocate, he knows the judge. He's actually paid the sacrifice, has made the sacrifice to satisfy the judge's demands. And all we have to do is come to him Recognize and agree with the truth, and anyone can come here. He is the propitiation, that sin offering for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Don't despair if there's something in your life that isn't what it ought to be. We have a high priest. But we need to check our lives. There's this warning again of deception. As we saw there in verse 8 of chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 6, if we walk in darkness, we say we have fellowship, but we walk in darkness, we lie. In verse 4, if we say that we keep his commandments, or we say we know him and we don't keep his commandments, we're a liar. All these things are out there. These religious systems of, of dualism don't measure up to this truth. 
We are to live as the manifest word that John talked about in verses 1 and 2. We are to walk as he walked. And what was his testimony? What did Jesus say how he lived? In John 8, verse 29, he says, For I do always those things that please the Father. My desire and prayer for myself and for each one of us is that we would experience the joy that God intends for each person to have. It's the result of acknowledging and practicing the truth. A life that has nothing to hide. Practice that measures up to profession. And how is it possible? How is it possible? And it's only by the miracle. What verse did we open with? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Someone I was talking with recently had a long conversation and we were talking about different aspects of life, many and varied. But one thing is belief. You know, if you do not believe something, or what you believe will impact your life tremendously. If you believe something to the point that you're willing to die for it, that will affect all areas of your life to defend and to to live out that belief. And some of these concepts we can say we believe them, but it's demonstrated by how we live. If we really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and we really believe that that power is available in our lives, how does it show? Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, he's praying there for the church, and he says that that they would know, in verse 19, it says, what is the greatness, the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. God's desire is that we would open ourselves to that power. We have to first of all believe it's there, and then we have to cry out, we have to confess who we are and what our needs are. And he will forgive us. He wants us to walk in that newness of life and he has given us all the power we need through Christ if we open ourselves to it.